In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Bloom. And welcome to our very first episode. Yeah, we're going to be coming to you as often as we can to talk about uh, recent news, philosophy, politics. Yeah, and basically trying to apply certain philosophical concepts to the news of the day. So uh, if you're interested in politics, if you're interested in philosophy, you know, if you're interested in some just fun, intelligent conversations, then uh, you should definitely subscribe to us. Yeah, and then go listen to another podcast that does all that stuff better. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, let's let's just talk a little bit about ourselves real quick. Uh, Michael? Sure. Yeah, so um, I am a young professional working in D.C. I work for Capital One, and I do strategy and analytics. My background is in finance, management, and then also political philosophy which I did in college at University of Virginia. Yeah. And uh, I'm Nathan Silov. I uh, currently teach as an adjunct instructor of uh, communication studies. I have a bachelor's degree in political science and communication advocacy and a master's degree in uh, communication studies. So uh, we're both we're both working professionals and uh, we like to talk about philosophy and we're uh, very interested in politics and we're very passionate people. Yeah. Yeah, we tend to have these conversations over ice cream, so we figured uh, we'd cut out the ice cream, add in some microphones, and bring them all to you guys. I mean, we can we can bring ice cream into it every now and then if we want to. If you hear some ice cream, you'll yeah. know what's up. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so what is our, Michael, what is our theme for today? What are we going to be talking about today? Yeah, so today we'll talk about um, basically principle and strategy, and we'll weave that through a couple kind of current event discussions that we have. And so just to start off, we'll, we'll talk about kind of um, the political definition of each part of it. So generally in politics, you'll hear people talk about um, principle or, or even like policy motivation as um, kind of the reason behind a particular set of policies or goals. Um, and we can be really divided on these principles, but often you'll hear it contrasted to strategy, which tends to be the way that our policymakers or our people on a debate stage might go about trying to advocate for or, or um, actuate those policies. And they tend to be drawn in as forces in tension. And I think that's often because um, we tend to think of strategy as being the insincere application of faking principles, quote unquote, so that you can appeal to your to an audience. I think, generally speaking, this false, this uh, um, contrast, I think anyway, seems like a false dichotomy that's often drawn in order to give um, a cudgel, basically, to really extreme candidates. They'll say that strategy equals compromise, and compromise is hypocrisy, and hypocrisy is lying, and therefore any candidate that is strategic uh, is a bad candidate. Yeah. See, I, I think this is part of where it comes down to the uh, divide between like moderate versus uh, 
uh, the left flank or the right flank, um, because you you have you have a lot of the more progressive candidates who accuse those in the middle of being uh, sort of uh, more strategic, more corporate sellouty. Um, I mean, I mean, you had Elizabeth Warren during, I think it was the second debate, where she called out John Delaney by basically saying, "I don't know why anybody would run for president and not and just talk about all the things that we can't fight for." Um, I think that that idea uh, definitely does have does have some merit, though, uh, because at least what you often see in modern day politics is there's three types of ways of fighting. Uh, there's three sort of sides of fighting in DC. You have uh, what I would say regressives, people that uh, are you know uh, the right flank of the conserv of the Republican Party uh, that are fighting to take things back to a certain way. You have uh, your moderates, your centrists, that is mostly your corporate Democrats and and uh, maybe a few Republicans who are fighting to try to keep things the way that they are. They're saying that the status quo is what is great, and then you have progressives like you know you have you have Bernie Sanders, you have Elizabeth Warren, you have uh, AOC and the squad, um, who are all saying, no, we want to, the status quo isn't good. We need to try to go forward. We need to try to do things in the future. And I think that it's very easy to look at that, to, to look at moderates and say, are you actually fighting for this because you believe that the status quo is good or because the status quo is more convenient to fight for? Exactly. And there's, there's a really, it's, it's really confusing, especially when you're talking about moderate, moderate candidates to misunderstand or potentially misattribute their efforts as being insincere, as opposed to them being interested in like the principles of running the government effectively yeah, um, and actually making tangible progress. Not to say that a highly principled perspective doesn't make tangible progress, but it's, it, there are candidates out there that are, um, interested in the act of administering and working a government. I think that the challenge is telling those candidates apart from the ones that have been bought and sold. Yeah. And I guess one, one of the issues is most candidates have been bought and sold and the very few that we know have not been bought and sold because we can look at where does their support actually come from? Does it come from grassroots support or does it come from corporate PACs? Those are usually the ones that are more progressive. Um, so, I'm not saying that you can't have a principled centrist, but I can't really think of any that are that are completely like innocent of that. Yeah, and I think a huge challenge is, especially on the primary stage, which is we're all in the throes of right now, it's really important for those candidates to advocate for the principles and the policies that they believe in while trying to put forward a plan that makes sense for actually being able to actuate those principles. Um, the challenge is that you put forward progressive principles, and then if you can't actually carry those through, which is the case for moderation, is that you can put together a plan where you can actually get to the end goal, um, you'll be seen as either a failure or insincere in your policymaking. Yeah, but at the same time, if you are honest about what you're trying to do, then you know you get out there, you argue for it. I mean, that's uh, one of the things that Bernie Sanders likes to bring up a lot is that a lot of the country was not with him on Medicare for all, was not with him on free college tuition. Um, in fact, I'm not even sure how with them they were on legalizing marijuana. I 
I, I don't I don't remember the numbers at the time. I think it was still above fifty percent, but he got out there and he argued for them, and now a majority of the United States supports all three of those policies. Yeah, I think Bernie Sanders is a great case for, and you'll hear us talk about this, I'm sure, again and again, for the uh, like a great ideal candidate. You have someone with a long history of advocating for principles and at the same time working to make incremental progress that's possible. Yeah. And he has made incremental progress. I yeah. mean, people people in the Senate viewed uh, called him the the amendment king because he put so many amendments to various bills that got passed, and like he he got things done that way. Um, all right, so we're going to be mainly applying the principle of strategy versus principle uh, to several different stories of the week. Uh, first off, let's talk a little bit about the impeachment proceedings. Um, so first off. The case for impeachment. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about what has led up to this and all of the reasons why Trump could could have been impeached long before this. And then we're going to have a discussion first off of why did Democrats, specifically uh, Nancy Pelosi, take so long to decide, okay, this is the line, we should go and impeach him. So the first thing is the emoluments clause. So the Constitution prohibits any elected official from taking emoluments from any foreign government. So Trump, consider because of the fact that he has Trump hotels in D.C., which foreign diplomats were staying in when they were coming to the United States, and he also had uh, Trump hotels around the world in various parts of the world that he was getting money from, he was in violation of the emoluments clause, arguably, the moment that he was sworn into office. Now, but isn't the counter-argument to that often that he's supposed to have all of his um, money-producing assets in like a blind trust or something like that? Yes, yes, that is uh, that is the argument. But the issue is that it's not the type of blind trust that most presidents, uh, that most recent presidents have used in order to, have, uh, to prevent conflicts in the past. So um, the one that he created, it, ha- it is... It is overseen by an independence ethics officer, and it's managed by Trump's sons, Eric and Don Jr. Now, traditionally, when you've had these blind trusts set up in order uh, if by presidents to make sure that they're avoiding conflicts of interest, um, it's usually run by a completely independent trustee, and ideally, they should have no contact with the person. But obviously, Trump does have contact with his sons, and... And this is this is the important part. Um, it holds profits from the businesses for him. This is uh, according to the Washington Post. Uh, it holds profits for him, and allows him to draw money. So he's still benefiting from it. He's still profiting from it. And that comes down to the principle of why the emoluments clause is uh, is there. Why why it's in place and why it's important. Yeah, the emoluments clause is there specifically to prevent protect the American people from having a chief executive or any public official, any um, officer of um, of the government be in unduly influenced or have a conflict of interest with a foreign entity and foreign governments. So the importance of the emoluments clause to the American people and to protecting and safeguarding their interests is that it prevents the interests of other 
uh, foreign entities and governments from influencing American policymaking. Um, it, and it enables the um, American people to be confident in their officers that they are acting in the best in their best interest rather than in their own or the interests of foreign governments. Yeah. And we can actually see how violations of the emoluments clause could uh, have affected policies uh, that the Trump administration has implemented or tried to implement. For example, uh, remember the Muslim ban? Uh, yes. Which was ban. definitely not a Muslim ban. No, no, no. It was, uh, you know, for safeguarding. And yeah, stuff. exactly. Even though on the campaign trail, he specifically said that he was calling for a total, complete shutdown of Muslims entering the country. But it wasn't a Muslim ban it when was, he actually implemented. It, it wasn't a Muslim ban. Yeah, it was a really weak attempt at non-comprehensive immigration control from a couple countries. What, what are you talking yeah. about? So the important thing to note, and this is according to Bloomberg, um, the countries that were on the list were all countries that suspiciously— Trump did not have any business dealings with or had any uh, any or that the Trump administration had any had pursued any potential deals with, including uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, Azerbaijan. And and look, one of the big arguments about why we should have the Muslim ban was, well, but 9-11, if there was a Muslim ban, it would have prevented 9-11. This specific Muslim ban would not have prevented 9-11 because several of the hijackers were from the countries that did not make the list, and they didn't make the list because it was, uh, because they had ties to the Trump organization. Now, to be clear, this list should never have been made in the first place, but the fact that it was affected by his business deals is an excellent example of why the emoluments clause is so freaking important. Um, and so the importance of that is is twofold. One, there's the actual conflict of interest that is uh, potentially demonstrated here. The second portion, and when you talk about conflict of interest, this is a really key one, is a perceived conflict of interest. So in the private sector and in the public sector, regulations of conflict of interest um, apply not only to actual conflict of interest, but perceived conflict of interest. And that's really important in this case, especially with regards to um, foreign policy, because when you have a perceived conflict of interest, it affects the way other countries deal with you as an entity. So if, um, you know, if we, if Donald Trump looks like he is favoring certain countries over others, even if he actually isn't, because of his business dealings with those countries, that will impede our ability to make effective deals abroad. It will prevent us from having as effective foreign policy as if those perceived conflicts of interests weren't there. So the, the, the difference that is often drawn, um, the counterargument that's often given to this discussion is like, well, he, we don't know that he actually had a conflict of interest. Well, that's beside the point. The perceived conflict of interest is enough to impede Americans' interests abroad. Yeah, because our diplomatic stance in the world is extremely important, and we need to make sure that we're not being influenced by outside uh, by outside interests, or even assumed to have been influenced by outside interests. Exactly. So another example of an important conflict of interest that could that should add another layer to the impeachment based on the emoluments clause is the Saudi-led war in Yemen, which is 
basically a genocide. The War Powers Act was enacted through resolution by the House of Representatives. It was led in the House by Representative Ro Khanna from California and also by uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, obviously from Vermont, in the Senate. And it was passed with bipartisan support and Trump vetoed it. And the accusation is that the, because Trump has business dealings within Saudi Arabia, he has a conflict of interest when it comes to giving them weapons deals, which they then use to massacre people in Yemen. So he had a chance to end that, but he didn't take it. So we are supporting a genocide, and it could be because Trump has hotels in Saudi Arabia. Let's take a moment to emphasize this. This was a bipartisan bill. Yeah. That passed and made it to Trump's desk. Yeah, it was worked on by Senator Mike Lee and Bernie Sanders. And Senator Mike Lee, he is no liberal. He is no moderate conservative. <laughs> Takeaway, anybody that is against genocide at least has at least has that feather in their cap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that's another thing for uh, that's another uh argument for impeachment. Another argument for impeachment is the fact that currently Michael Cohen is in prison for violating campaign finance, uh, for violating campaign finance laws. And his co-conspirator is the president of the United States. So that's just another thing that that's just, that just adds to the list. So, and now that brings us to Ukraine the infamous call between President Trump and President Zelensky. So there are two things to pull from it. There are, there are two different crimes that happened in this car call based on what we've heard after the transcript was released and as soon as the transcript was released. The first crime is just solicitation, all right? Under federal election law, it is illegal for a elected official to solicit, accept, or receive a contribution or donation from a foreign government. Now, a contribution is defined as anything of value. So opposition research or investigations to hurt a political opponent, under the law, that is something of value. And to ask a foreign government to do that is against the law. So when Trump said, and, and I quote this, there's a lot of talk about Biden's son that Biden stopped the prosecution and a lot of people want to find out about uh, about that. So whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great. That in and of itself, that line right there is a crime. And it's a separate crime from the one that people like to talk about, which is quid pro quo. Yes, he's he's simply asking for a foreign entity to give him something of value, which is a violation of campaign finance law. Yeah, you can't do that. So the second crime that Republicans are trying to, we're trying to get it to focus on because it's less easy to, to prove this, is quid pro quo. Now, the quid pro quo, in this case, is the fact that uh, aid to Ukraine is contingent on investigations into uh, Hunter Biden and the D.C., so, or the DNC. So first off, there's a part in the transcript in which uh, Zelensky says, we are ready to continue to cooperate for the next steps. Specifically, we're almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. 
To which the president responded by saying, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine knows all about it. I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say CrowdStrike. So what is CrowdStrike? CrowdStrike is this conspiracy theory that Trump has that basically um, the, the firm that investigated the Russians' hack into the DNC server back in the 2016 election had mishandled the DNC servers, and it's in Ukraine now. Now, there's no evidence that this is actually true, but Trump believes this, and Trump was trying to receive help in basically finding that DNC server, which uh, ideally, the I mean, obviously the intent for that is to hurt his political opponents, the DNC. So that right there is even more evidence of quid pro quo. So the next piece of evidence for quid pro quo is that Mick Mulvaney actually admitted it. He actually admitted it. Uh, he's, the, he's the White House chief of staff, and he actually admitted it um, in a press conference where he said, quote, did he also mention to me in the past that the corruption related to the DNC server? Absolutely. No question about that. But that's it. And that's why we held up the money. And a reporter called him out. They said, wait a minute, what you just described was a, DN was a quid pro quo, to which Mick Mulvaney responded by saying, we do that all of the time in foreign policy. Now, it's important to call out, in the interest of fairness, he could have been using, you know, the, ro the royal we, as in, I, Mick Mulvaney, do that all the time. <laughs> he could also have been referring to governments, generally speaking. Yeah. But none of that would be an effective defense against yeah. admitting, accepting something of value or forcing something of value um, in order to provide foreign aid. We're talking about leveraging the United States as a power and leveraging the United States uh, budget in order to get something of aid to use against an opponent. Which, by the way, these funds had already been allocated by Congress and voted on by Congress, and Trump was holding it up. Yeah, so at this point, we're talking about an executive actually impeding the actuation of American foreign policy abroad in order to receive illegally receive something of value to aid his campaign. So here's the question, Michael. Why the hell did Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats wait this freaking long to decide on impeachment? I mean, I didn't even mention the Bob Mueller stuff, which uh, his final report showed at least 10 instances in which Trump might have obstructed justice. Why the hell did the Democrats wait this long to finally decide to do something? And I think this gets back to principle versus strategy. Nathan, the principle versus strategy trade-off that we're talking about here is the clear interests of the American peer people in having their foreign policy faithfully executed abroad held against the political expediency of pursuing um, crime, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors or impeachment against the President of the United States up to this point. So the principle in this case is clear. The question then is, how is it possible for the trade-off of strategy 
to try to counterbalance it. There, I can't see into the minds of the Democrats in the House, um, but one can only assume that they have a few things on their mind. One is just the political popularity of the whole question, whether there would be enough uproar on the side of Democratic supporters to counterbalance the inevitable outcry of Trump supporters on the other side. The other is, and this might be the most cynical point of all, delaying the impeachment proceedings so that they can fall more squarely on the 2020 election and become a strong issue of political expediency for the 2020 election, which really tears me up. I would actually, I actually don't think that that's necessarily what they were doing because I think that in their mind, if they tried to do an impeachment proceeding, they're still scared about what happened uh, during the Bill Clinton impeachment. It made him look like a sympathetic character and he won re-election in a landslide. Um, so they're still worried that that is what might happen. I think that they were worried about the opposite. I think that they were worried about if we do this, it will mobilize Trump's base. It will mobilize Republicans to come out and support their guy. Now, what my counterargument to that, though, would be is that impeachment is just as mobilizing for Democrats as it is for Republicans. And there are more people that support impeachment than, uh, than don't support it. Sure. It begs the question, why now then at that point? Yeah. So the, the counterargument that I would make is that if the Democrats have been willing and able to be this cynical about so many obvious crimes up until now, why risk it during a critical time in the political cycle. Well, my my super cynical, uh, the cynic in me says it's because they went after Biden. It went after their beloved Biden. Um, the the realist in me uh, says, yeah, I know my my <laughs> my heart. <laughs> the real the realist in me, uh, or maybe this isn't the real. The other idea that I have is, um. They thought that this was going to be easier to prove, that this is a little bit less complicated. Um, and also another, I guess another aspect of the cynic in me also thinks that maybe when it comes to other things like the war profiteering uh, from Yemen or um, uh, other violations of the emoluments clause, maybe they're worried that a future Democrat might come in and be corrupt and they'll have to reconcile the fact that they all again. I'm being really cynical right here. Yeah. But maybe maybe they're worried that another Democrat is going to come in and be corrupt with that because, I mean, Democrats. A lot of Democrats do receive money from uh, various different uh, corporate PACs that profit off of war. Maybe it's not just that they're worried about a Democratic candidate coming in and having this scandal come out that would compromise their platform. Maybe it's even worse than that. Maybe it's that they themselves are worried that if they go after the emoluments picture, it will uncover yeah. all of the of the emoluments questions um, and corruption underlying a lot of their political success. To which my argument would be good. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, look, I I'm not uh, look. I am a, I'm obviously more of a Democrat. Uh, I, I'm obviously a, a progressive, and I, I vote Democrat in 
pretty much every election. But if it comes out that a bunch of Democrats that are currently in office are violating the emoluments clause on a regular basis, are corrupt, I want them out because I don't want them advocating for my views if they are if they are corrupted. Fingers crossed. They listen to this podcast. They hear <laughs> that impassioned request for them to straighten themselves out. And, yeah. and they listen. Oh, please. Please, good sir. Stop being corrupt. <laughs> but I've got to say, we're not talking about Trump's base here. I don't think they're going to vote against their own interests. Yeah. Yeah. And their interests are to keep wraps on on any type of corruption inquiry. Yeah. And to focus on arguably the easier case to make. A bit late, however, in my opinion. Um, but the easier case to make that it's quid pro quo with a foreign government where the transcripts were released and the case is pretty clear. Um, rather than trying to make the more difficult and potentially politically costly emoluments argument. Yeah. And what I think is hilarious is that Trump actually thought that that transcript would like, uh, <laughs> would prove that he was innocent. He just wanted to show off all of <laughs> like his He thought that would grammar. exonerate him. He was like, look, it's a great call. It's a beautiful call. It's yeah. the best call. So this brings us to this really dumb stunt that like 30 Republicans pulled. Uh, where they stormed uh, a they they stormed an inquiry hearing in which a Pentagon official was testifying before the House Intelligence Committee, and the and they were saying that they were being kept out of it that this was happening behind closed doors, even though thirteen of the Republicans were a part of the committees that are a part of the uh, 13 of the Republicans that did the storming were a part of the action of the committees that are a part of the inquiry. So they would have been invited in there anyway. And as someone who attends a lot of meetings, when you storm a meeting to which you're invited, that means you're just late. <laughs> yeah. So the idea about the, the the thing that they were trying to adver they were trying to advocate for was they were saying that they need to be more transparent like why are these democrats trying to close republicans out of this and close the public out of it but there were republicans in there too there were republicans on the committee as well like also let's point out that when you have committee meetings about sensitive intelligence related information you have those meetings behind closed doors with selected cleared individuals. The transcripts are then reviewed and redacted by the respective intelligence committees or organizations. And then they're distributed as part of the public record, yeah. fully redacted in, in order to align with intelligence requirements. So this is not a partisan, uh, like on the part of the Democrats, it's not a partisan attempt to try to shut the American people out of the investigation process. It's an important process in order to safeguard America's interests. Yeah. And also, you know who created these rules in the first place that made it a, a closed-door meeting to anybody that wasn't a part of the committees? You know who created those rules? Ah, oh, gee, why don't you tell me? Radical leftist activist John Boehner. The Boehner King. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, uh, John Boehner is the former Speaker of the House, and he's a Republican. And a civic-minded one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So anyways, and apparently another crazy thing about this story is reportedly there were several lawmakers that were asking police officers to arrest them for doing this. And so here we get to such a clear case of strategy. Like, there's no point to this. This is purely them pulling a political stunt to try to... Um, to try to cast a negative light on this investigation. They're trying to rile people up with fear and frustration. Now, don't be fooled by the fact that it went poorly and they're bad at it. It's still <laughs> a bad faith attempt yeah. to try to gain appeal. And think of it this way. We're talking about it. The media was talking about it. So it worked in that regard. I mean... Some would say all publicity is good publicity, and this is getting publicity. So in that regard, it was strategically advantageous. Now, on principle, because we laid out the fact that it's a completely intellectually dishonest thing to protest, it's complete bullcrap, but, but the strategic value of it, it, it can't really be denied. Especially in combination with the ability to control the information that is released to um, Trump's very solid base. If you're watching Fox News, you're not hearing that these uh, uh, com Republican committee members were invited to this meeting. Yes. You are seeing the narrative that they wanted to tell. All they needed was to be there for the photo op. Oh, and they tried to compare themselves to uh, uh, the 300 Spartans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. If only they had as much success. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say if only they came to the same ends. <laughs> All right. So at this point, we have a uh, segment, which uh, we're hoping is going to be a recurring segment. Asshat of, of the Week. week. So what is the asshat of the week, Michael? So every time we're coming to you with an episode, we're <laughs> going to endeavor to reflect on the past week, both personal experiences, things that have been in the news, and we encourage you all to reach out with uh, contenders of your own to try to identify someone who's specifically worthy of being called out for being an asshat. So who is our worthy candidate of this week? Well, Nathan, we have a heavyweight this week. A Tennessee County Commissioner named Warren Hurst went on a rant at a local meeting. He said, uh, we got a queer running for president. If that ain't out about as ugly as you can get. You're about as ugly as you can get, Hurst. And, and look, let me just point one thing out. Um, I got some problems with uh, some of Pete Buttigieg's more centrist uh, views, but he's a beautiful guy. I mean, he's good looking, you know, come on. Yeah, you can't call it. You, you, maybe you're saying that it's. Uh, maybe you're not saying he's ugly. That it's ugly. But come on, ugly and Pete Buttigieg should not be in the same sentence, or at least same idea. And hey, I think Warren Hurst is probably a progressive. He talked about prejudice. Yeah, he said he did. I'm not prejudiced. Oh, that's great. A white male in this country has very few rights, and they're getting took more every day. Oh God, are you are you getting are you getting your rights taken away, Michael? I'm getting is my that... rights. Took. Every day? As, they're, they're took, took. As, as a white man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which which rights? Which rights are being taken away? Took. Are being Generally took. speaking, it's the rights to have more rights than other people. <laughs> oh, those. <laughs> now, we don't want to be mean to Tennessee. Yeah. 
Yeah, there People... was there was one woman that stood up and very 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 civilly she started out. She said, "Excuse me, this is not professional. This is bull." Hallelujah. <laughs> I just love that. I love how it started out like she was trying to say something so like so ca so civil, like "Excuse me," like so polite. This is not professional. This is bull. I'm so glad she didn't stop as the, at this is not professional though. Yeah. Like, yeah. The point is not that this is not the context for those comments. Exactly. Exactly. Like, and you can't even, you can't even talk about like being explicit in this context. I mean, listen to what this guy just said. Like, damn. Um, Seriously. So, so, so congratulations to, to Warren Hurst yep. for being this week's asshat of the week. Yep. Yep. Our very first asshat of the week. You shall go down in history. <laughs> <laughs> and that's ass hat of the week. Oh, that went well. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, end up by talking about some primary stuff. First off, um, and I, you know, I feel like I've never directly asked you this question, and I've actually purposely never asked you this question so that I could find out over this podcast. Um, who are you supporting in the primary? I really don't know. Yeah. Uh, who are your Who are your favorites? I guess. I mean, you got some really strong candidates out there. Yeah. You got You got Cory Booker, who doesn't say too much, <laughs> <laughs> and also uh, has a problematic past with pharmaceutical companies. Yep. You got um, Mr. Biden. Yeah. Who has a long legislative history. Yeah. Um, like the uh, the little, crime bill. A little which... bit of problem with rage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And a little bit of problem with race. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He comes from a different time, Nathan. And that time... Bernie Sanders is older than him. Probably should rely firmly in the past. Bernie Sanders is older than him by one year. And while Biden was working with segregationists, Bernie was getting arrested for protesting segregation on a college campus. I believe it was a University of Chicago. So uh, anybody who tries to argue to me... Like, oh, well, he's just a product of his time. Great. Vote for Bernie then. <laughs> because this he time, was ahead of his time. Yeah. And this time is not that time. Yeah. Like, we need a candidate of the future. Yeah. That's who we're looking for. That's yeah. who we're voting for. And that's not based on age. Not It's at based all. on ideas. If you have old ideas, then they should stay in the past. If you have new ideas, then they should bring out the future. And let's be clear. Biden has been a very effective administrator. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, he he's we can give him credit for the fact that uh, while he was vice president, in a lot of ways, his public support for marriage equality and LGBT rights is a huge thing that pushed Obama to finally be like, eh, Biden's for it. Screw it. So am I. I mean... <laughs> uh, I can I, see Obama saying exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, and he was he was and he called this point out very forcefully that he was very active about whipping votes uh in his time as uh, the leader of the Senate. Which by the way, that was that was such a bullcrap part of the uh of the debate. Like, I mean, it, it, first off, the spectacle of this guy, of this this white guy taking credit for um Elizabeth Warren's accomplishments. I mean, look, look this was, keep in mind, she brought up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau when he basically said, 
that Bernie and Warren hadn't really accomplished anything. And she was like, uh, hello. To, to provide a little bit of context for people that may not have either noticed this in the debate or watched the debate. Um, basically, Elizabeth Warren was discussing her uh, legislative accomplishments, her signature piece of legislation. Well, it wasn't. It, this was before she was in the Senate. Oh, like she she was a she was an activist who worked with the Obama administration in order to create the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau before she was even a senator. And then when she and then basically what she did was she was like, huh, that went well. I'm going to go run for Senate. And she beat a Republican out of his seat. She's a badass. Yeah, she's a badass. I mean, I I mean, look, um, I you've probably figured this out by now. I'm definitely uh, more of a Bernie supporter, but I, I I am very fond of Elizabeth Warren. She is a very solid second choice for me. She does have a pretty darn good record. She has done a lot, and she she has done a very good job of advocating for various progressive policies. Yeah, I, I tend to be a huge fan of her ability to clearly and effectively yeah. articulate. She's very professorial. Like the fact that she, you know. Incredibly complex information. Yeah. She can break down the problems with the financial industry and has done so and has addressed them in ways that most financial professionals can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, make she's... them clear enough to people to get advocate, to advocate for the regulation of really complex concepts yeah and i just gotta say i love the tag team on joe biden like with her and bernie over medicare for all like they're such a freaking good team with that um so so what do you think uh a bernie warren ticket well so i mean that was my dream ticket in 2016 my concern with that is um there's I, no counterbalancing effect. Well, no, no, no. Oh God, God, no! You, you I, want I, you don't want to both sides it. No, no, dude. I. She should, he should have a Republican. No, yeah, yeah. You should have a Republican or a moderate Democrat. No, absolutely not. No, he he. Uh, I'm one. I mean, by his when he was asked earlier about who he might be thinking about for a vice president, uh, he said uh, someone who is a different gender and someone who is younger. And Elizabeth Warren is younger, but she is still seventy. Now, to be fair. Like he's 77 uh, or 78. I think he might have turned 78 recently. Um, but I, I guess I guess my concern is um, you want to pick a vice president with the idea that this person is definitely going to be running for in the run for president uh, in the next cycle. Um, I think that Biden was a little bit of an old choice for Obama back in the day. Um, in a lot of ways, he was chosen as sort of a, a safe bet to, to keep white Americans um, on uh, that might, were concerned about there being a black man on the ticket, uh, that he was a he was a um, he was to satisfy a lot of the working class white vote. Um, but I, 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 I love the idea of a Bernie Warren ticket, but I'm I'm concerned that it might be a waste of a spot. Also, another point to bring up is. Someone's got to be in the Senate to propose all this legislation. That's true. You know? That's a great point. So, um, and to craft it. Yeah. So I think that if if Bernie becomes the nominee, I, I'm not sure if I think he should choose Warren. And if Warren becomes the nominee, I, I don't think she should necessarily choose Bernie. Hmm. I mean, I'd love to see her choose Ro Khanna, um, Yeah. Who's the... Uh, I, I mentioned him earlier. He's the guy that enacted the War Powers Resolution... Uh, the, the War Powers Act in the uh, in the uh, House of Representatives. Um, he's a, he's 
brilliant legislator. Uh, he's uncorrupted. He's a part of the Justice Democrats, um, and he is a he's a great progressive. Um, so, as it stands, uh, Bernie recently received an endorsement from uh, three of the four members of the squad, uh, from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, from Ilan Omar, and uh, Rashida Tlaib. Um, so far, Ayanna Presley has not uh, stated any uh, proposed endorsements yet. Um, keep in mind, she does represent Massachusetts, so that does kind of put her in an awkward position between Bernie and Warren, but uh, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd definitely be curious to see who she ultimately ends up endorsing, if she endorses anybody. Um, but, uh, and as it stands, the polls, and this is, uh, we are recording this on October 28th. As of right now, the polls have, um, the real clear politics average has Joe Biden at 27.2%, Elizabeth Warren at 21.8%, Bernie Sanders at 17.3%. And the only other really notable thing to point out is that since the debate, Buttigieg has actually gone up a little bit. He's up to 7%. He has overtaken uh, Kamala Harris. Um, so that's interesting because I I really didn't think he did that great of a job in the debate, but that's probably because I disagreed with most of what he said. But at the same time, most of what he was arguing against, like Medicare for all and uh, uh, and such, that that's supported by a majority of Democrats. So I don't know how that got him so much favor among Democrats, but I, I don't know. It looks like... Uh, it looks like there is a little bit of a fall for Joe Biden, a little bit of a fall for Elizabeth Warren, a slight rise for Bernie, and then a, a little bit of a rise for Buttigieg. So that is the state of the race at this point. Cool. So what are your thoughts? What are your final thoughts on the primary? Obviously, it's still a pretty wide field, but at this point, we know who the front runners are. Um, the question in my mind is whether Biden is going to keep being able to ride the high of his political career up to this point and whether he's going to try to leverage his uh, emphasis on experience more and whether that's going to really appeal to voters. Yeah. Um, I think that's the biggest feather in his cap. Um, and I wonder whether that's going to appeal to primary voters and if it's really exciting enough to get a win for the Democrats in 2020 even yeah. if he gets the nomination. Yeah, yeah, I, I would I would agree. I think um, I think that Biden's going to continue to fall um, at this point. I think that uh, his last debate performance was probably his strongest debate performance, and that's not saying much. Now, and I don't mean that, like, I'm not trying to be mean about it. I'm not saying that Biden's a terrible human being, but he is a lot more centrist than I want him to be, and he is a lot more pro-corporate than I want him to be. I mean, look, obviously he's better than Trump, but let's set the bar higher than that. I mean, a dumpster fire would be better than Trump. And better for American healthcare. Yeah, but I ain't gonna write in a dumpster fire when I go to vote in the primary, and I sure as hell am not gonna do that when I go to vote in the general. So let's try to set the bar higher than just uh, better than Trump. Yeah, I, I've got to say I agree with you. Um, and I also, so I'm really worried about the idea of relying on a more moderate, less exciting candidate in the election. Um, ironically, this point kind of comes from Buttigieg. 
which is Republicans are not going to vote Democrat. Yeah. So we need the Democrats to be excited to vote Democrat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's the one that said, if we do a moderate health care plan, the Republicans are going to say we're a bunch of crazy socialists. And if we do a progressive plan, they're going to say we're a bunch of crazy socialists. So fight for what you believe in. And we know that we've seen that to be true. We know Trump's base is not going to waver much. And so it's all about who can get the swing population to be more excited about the future. Exactly. Exactly. Or unfortunately, more afraid about the future. We'll see which one prevails. All right. So to end out the to end out this podcast, we're going to do some highlights of our week. Now, why do we do this, Michael? So on this show, we were really worried that we were going to say a lot of negative stuff. The reality is that we are excited about these topics. We're excited about the future, but there's a lot of work ahead of us. And we wanted to make sure to end on a high note every time we come to you. So my highlight of the week was I finished a lot of grading. Excellent. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I had a huge mountain of uh, short papers to... Uh, do and I finished that stuff. So that's that's my big highlight, contributing to academia. My highlight um, is going to be the highlight I have probably most weeks, but it was getting to see Bree this past weekend. Bree's my wife, and right now we're living in two different cities. So when we get to see each other, it's the best. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's the podcast. Thank you all for listening. Yeah, thanks for tuning into the Perspectrum. We'll uh, talk to you next time. 